The only school that teaches you about money is the school of hard knocks. Until now. You need to learn this business, and this is the time to do it. Become an insider. So you have to know the rules before you get in the game. Welcome to the Money MBA Podcast. Oh, have I got your attention now? Where you'll learn how to be a master of money. There's so many ways to make money today. Let me show you in two seconds flat why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now here's your host, Jonathan Katsmita. Welcome back to the Money MBA Podcast, the quarantine sessions. Up next, we have none other than Mike Green of Logica Capital. Now, the interesting thing about this conversation is it was on my last day of quarantine. In fact, it was in the morning I was free to go. So honestly, there's not too many people after I spend 14 days in a hotel quarantine that can keep me stuck in that hotel for an extra hour or two besides Mike Green. Um, I think if this is the first time you've ever been introduced to Mike, heard him share his thoughts, um, be part of a, a finance and intellectual conversation, you're, you're definitely in for a treat. Um, however, this is really just the tip of the iceberg in regards to how deep the Mike Green rabbit hole actually goes. So after you're done enjoying this conversation, I thoroughly encourage you to check out some of his other content, whether it be on something like Real Vision or any of the other podcasts he's uh, participated in. For example, I just finished interviewing Grant Williams. Uh, Mike Green um, provided an incredible conversation and interview with Grant and Bill Fleckenstein for their Endgame series. Um, Mike has a ton of knowledge. One of the things that I think is very interesting about consuming his content or just being around him and, and having the opportunity to speak with him is that it's never just this one thing. It's not hammering on about just one concept or it's Mike seems to kind of have an expertise on, on a lot of things. And, and you get that sense when you're uh, around him, but you also don't get the sense that he's trying to shove his knowledge down your throat. It's really for him a, a conversation, a, um, a path to discovery. So even for someone like me, he gives me the time of day and is willing to spend time talking to me because it helps him uh, have a fresh perspective on some of the things that he's thinking about. And I think Mike does a tremendous job of that with the people he surrounds himself with and the people he has conversations with. He helps us look at things differently, open our eyes, um, not just from a market standpoint, but just whether it be history, sociology, politics. And I think it's, it's incredibly valuable to have somebody with a skill set like that, the ability to open people's eyes without creating that agitation that often happens when you start to change somebody's mind or perspective. And the fact that Mike has that skill set along with the knowledge that he has and the willingness to participate and share it with so many people truly is invaluable. So without further ado, please welcome Mike Green. This is uh, a pleasure for me. Hopefully it's a pleasure for you. And like I said, after you're done enjoying uh, this great conversation. Make sure you follow Mike on Twitter and find some of his other material. I think you'll find it incredibly valuable. So please enjoy. Mike Green, thank you so much uh, for joining me here on the Money MBA podcast in this little series I'm doing, the quarantine sessions. As you can see, um, I'm in a hotel and, and it's kind of ironic because given that you're one of the people I always look forward to and I couldn't be more excited to have you on and chat with you for a while. 
at the same time, I'm officially a, a free man, so I can't wait to get the heck out of here. So, <laughs> now, what makes you a free man? What what has changed? Um, well, coming into Australia, you have to do a 14 day hotel quarantine. Yep. Um, I mean, you can't come here unless you're a resident, permanent resident or a citizen. So it's already a pretty small, isolated group of people coming in. Um, but yeah, so 14 days here, can't go out, you know, no wind. Well, I have a window, but no fresh air. Um, so officially after 14 days, yesterday they came around and they gave the certificates and all, all the hoopla. I got a, you know, convict wristband. So I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to exit the hotel without getting tackled. Um, I, I can think of nothing. You, you sound like you're a little congested. I can think of nothing more certain to make you sick than being locked up in a hotel room for 14 days. Totally, so. totally man. I mean, it's, it's one of those things like, you know, I, I try to plan ahead with, with um, like I brought saline spray just to kind of try to keep myself, you know, somewhat functional, but I mean, you're breathing recirculated recir- air in a, in a country that's already dry. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, I, I, I it's, what a terrible way to spend the nicest time of year in Australia. But uh, I'm glad that you are almost out. I thought you were about to tell me that you'd like gotten divorced and fled to Australia and sold your property. <laughs> no, I'm, it's, I it's haven't the, quite put myself into that freedom that the rest yet. of us have, 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 have uh, not yet begun to appreciate, but it certainly feels like it's going that way. I mean, I am in my home in Marin where we have been locked down in one form or another now for going on nine months, right? I mean, various forms of lockdown and restrictions on transport and uh, gatherings, et cetera. So this is, this is a, a remarkable period in time that I can only look forward to ending from our standpoint. It feels like <laughs> 14 days is a small period versus uh, nine months, but. Well, I feel, I, I feel somewhat, you know, it's unusual times and it's certainly unfortunate times for a lot of people, but I'm, I have, you know, a, a small amount of gratitude for it because I feel like if you weren't locked down, you know, for so long, as you like to say, I'm sure your family's tired of hearing about you. So you're more eager to just have conversations with other people like myself. Yeah, in a lot of ways, actually, they're, they have become easier, right? It, it, the expansion of tools like Zoom, et cetera, have actually facilitated for the older generation. I think what the younger generation was naturally picking up with FaceTime and snap and everything else, which is um, more the visual contact and more the informal gatherings as compared to the more formal settings that you and I are used to interacting with. But I had a very brief window. I traveled to Dallas in uh, October and that was a, a very welcome relief. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you are free and uh, heading out into the sunshine after this call. So we'll try to make it as, as brief as possible. Uh, well, I'm not going to hold my breath on that, and I'm certainly not. <laughs> I'm certainly I, I am not known gonna, for my long-windedness. Yeah, <laughs> I'm certainly not going to force it myself. And um, you know, it's funny if you would have told me last year that I was going to be in person, not only have conversations with, but be in person with Mike Green more times than I can count on one hand. Um, I certainly wouldn't have believed you at all, but. Um, I did have the, the pleasure of being part of that small gathering in Dallas. And uh, what, I, what I think is interesting, you know, being, speaking of myself, not really going through the, the gauntlet um, like you have in Wall Street, where when I get to be around guys like you, who've, you know, you've put in three, three decades and, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me when, when you present these ideas. And I have a couple questions about kind of how they, 
how they come into Genesis, you know, and, um, you know, when I first met you in, in Cayman Islands, I mean, you, you kind of blew everybody's mind with your presentation at that, at that time. And then you don't really know what you're getting, what to expect from Mike Green at this point, you know, a year later in Dallas. But what you talked about was, had, you know, for the most part, it was, it was, had nothing to do with really what the presentation was. Um, I mean, it does, but it, it didn't. It wasn't like you pulled out a few slides from the previous presentation and rehashed it, right? It was a fresh idea. It was a fresh message that you were trying to get across. And so that's always very fascinating to me is that the amount of work that guys like you put in and that it's, you know, there's, you're always going through these mental gymnastics and these exercises, but your ability to, I think, hone in and crystallize something and, and, it, it, and it be kind of like your primary focus in a given moment. And I know you're very focused with what you're doing with Logica and we're going to get to that, but I, I just think some of your thought exercises are so fascinating so I don't know if you want to talk about kind of your process. Like, do you lock yourself in a room for a month and, and think it through? Or is, it, is part of going to a meeting like you did in Dallas, you know, an exercise to crystallize some of those thoughts? That's absolutely part of the opportunity. And I feel privileged that I have people that both listen to me and engage um, actively. I mean, you've been through some of my presentations on Passive. You know that I always started with the well, you know, with the quote from Albert Einstein, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. And I always point that out to people at the start because I then highlight that it's not actually Albert Einstein and that it's a misattributed quote. And so part of the point is, is that when you have the opportunity to sit down and think deeply about this stuff and study it, you come across as somebody who knows what the hell they're talking about. And I think mm. most people are at an extraordinary disadvantage versus gurus on Wall Street or snake oil salesmen that are trying to pitch them something because the simple reality is you had probably never given that much thought to passive investing prior to my presenting my ideas. And I'm certain that most people have not spent you know, uh, weeks locked up in deep thought thinking, well, what is money? What does money actually mean, right? Or if they have, it's somewhat of a cursory dynamic as they're ironing their shirts, right? You know, what is money? What does it mean, right? <laughs> um, and so I always find it very valuable to travel around and talk to smart people and say, this is how I'm thinking. This is what I'm thinking. Push back and tell me what's going on. Um, when you talk about that process, um, you know, Grant Williams uh, highlighted this. Like, it, it really is true. I spent two and a half years traveling around the world talking to the smartest investors I knew prior to, of course, Zoom taking off um, and sharing with them my work on Passive and saying, look, tell me how I'm wrong. Explain to me where I have this wrong. And when no one can really push back, uh, then you suddenly realize, okay, wait a second, this is actually becoming an increasingly fully formed thought. And most people tend to gloss over that dynamic. They tend to think, you know, well, okay, here's an idea. Um, I'm going to spend some thought on it. I'm going to try to present it to people. And if people don't understand it or they don't agree with it, the immediate thought tends to be, well, they just don't understand because they haven't thought about it as deeply as I have, right? And I think that's a very poor approach. I think what you really want to do is actually, and uh, my former employer, Peter Thiel, is known for this, you want to strongman something. You want to understand why people love Bitcoin more than bit, than the, the Bitcoiners do themselves, right? You want to understand the arguments behind passive better than the passive proponents themselves. Otherwise, you're not really equipped to make the arguments 
that you want to make or, you know, and, and occasionally I'll find myself in this, like I've been struggling to write a paper on gold, which is now increasingly morphing into a paper on Bitcoin. And those who follow me on Twitter are increasingly being exposed to exactly this sort of argumentative dynamic where I'm saying, look, here's how I'm thinking about it. Prove me wrong. Tell me what your thought process is that would put me on the other side, that would flip my position. Um, and until you're ready to fully narrate that, I, I think you have to be very careful about asserting any sort of certainty in that sort of situation. And so what you saw in Dallas is kind of the opening salvo in what do I really think about Bitcoin? What do I really think about gold? And it's forcing me to actually challenge some of my deeply held beliefs that I've had about gold for a long time. I think of gold as a very effective pricing metric for commodities. It is a useful tool as money, right, um, in an environment in which commodities are the base traded good, right, where you go to as an industrial provider, you're most interested in buying steel, you're most interested in buying iron or copper, et cetera. Gold is a very useful tool for thinking about pricing in that framework. And it's increasingly obvious to me that it's actually maybe not so valuable for a world in which the primary consumption is something like a Zoom video call or telecommunications that are increasingly non-exclusive because our conversation is being broken up and packetized and shipped over the internet with very few limitations in terms of capacity, right? Or capacity expanding actually faster than we are adding to it. Many people remember all the fears 10 years ago about the internet was going to run out of capacity, right? Well, now here we are, we're commuting, you know, we're transmitting video all over the place because transmission capabilities have expanded, compression te technologies have expanded. And as a result, suddenly something that would have been very pricey and had to be done over a Cisco proprietary system are now done for free over a Zoom network, right? I think that's one of the challenges that, that we have to struggle with is the frame of reference that may work for a period in time, may not for another. And exploring that and being able to do so freely is, is a luxury that I have, right? I, I, I'm truly appreciative of that dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it, one, of, one of the things you said right there at the end is, is I think what I'm taking away from a lot of the stuff I'm watching you do, the presentation that uh, I had the privilege of, of watching and discussing and it's tricky here doing a podcast because i have a, that frame of reference so i'm trying to cliff note it a little bit so the conversation's you know digestible for people listening and watching but one of the things you just said there you know you're challenging this um very much so challenging a, a paradigm is that the right way of putting it i mean this historical viewpoint even of gold the way you question it it makes a ton of sense where Today, it doesn't make as much sense, even though from a narrative standpoint, it does, but not so much in its functionality outside of, you know, working as this pricing element for commodities. So are, are you, is that a big part of this experience for you? You kind of feel like these, it, it is a new world in terms of like the way certain things in the monetary system, the role that they used to play, it's, it's just not, it's, what is it, Mark Twain, you know, it's. So. What, not what we think we know, but what we yeah, know for what sure. we just, what we what we think we know that it just ain't so, right? Um, yeah, I, I do think that's one of the, the the real challenges, and and you know, just candidly, if you assess something like gold, it has all the classic hallmarks of um, 
a, uh, a, a an argument that you know Keynes described as a barbarous relic, and people, of course, love to make fun of that uh, that analysis. And to be fair, Keynes had a very poor understanding of the dynamic of money, or a very poor articulation of the dynamic of money. But when you think about how people defend gold, they all they often start with the first observation: gold has a five thousand year history, right? You know, mm-hmm. in the history of man, gold is money. Right. Well, that's a that's a pure straw man argument, right? You know, you are in, engaged in a classic appeal to authority. The, you know, let's look at the history and the augustness, and you know, it's the equi- the equivalent of saying the Tudors have ruled England for centuries, right? Like, it's meaningless in the current context of things, right? And the fact that something has a five thousand year history is. As somebody else pointed this out, and I thought they did an excellent job of highlighting, uh, the, you know, this fallacy. Um, but, you know, there's a 5,000-year history of bleeding people with leeches. And we don't continue to do it. And I understand that, that puts me out in a situation where people are, are immediately drawn to attack and saying, oh, there's a failure to appreciate the history. I think, you know, you know me well enough to know that actually I, I spend more time trying to consider that history and evaluate what's actually driving that narrative than most do. And that is, again, what kind of lends strength to an argument. When you can turn around and repeat the underlying argument that somebody has for why gold, right? Why is gold important? What are the historical examples that you can point to or the evidence thereof? Those are all things that I think are incredibly important in formulating your argument. And people can be very sloppy about it, right? Um, you see it, it, you know, you don't have children, but for those who have children and particular teenagers, you'll see them very quickly jump to a conclusion from a set of facts, right? You know, the, the, the classic IQ test of, you know, uh, Susie is a Wisby and, you know, James uh, is related to Susie and therefore James is a Wisby sort of thing, right? Well, mm-hmm they can immediately say, yes, that's true. And you're like, well, you don't know what a Wisby is, right? Maybe Susie is a Wisby and that requires being a woman and it's actually a designation, you know, so their relationship has no link whatsoever, right? Um, I just, I would just argue that, that that kind of becomes the most important part. You need to understand your opponent's argument probably better than they do. And you also need to free yourself to make mistakes and think clearly and, and be unfailing and kind of pulling the thread on that sweater until there's no more sweater left. So. Yeah, but yeah, and I also think your approach, though, is you're not, although I think maybe a 40,000-foot view may judge it this way, but you're not trying to win the argument, per se. Like, yeah, you, 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 you want to have that strongman approach so you can have an intelligent debate about it and kind of get somewhere that's productive, but you're not going in and I'm right. I have to win this and let me beat you up at, at every corner. It's actually really funny because um, the, the worst arguments I'll have with my wife or she'll say something along the lines of it's impossible to argue with you. And I'm like, we're not arguing. <laughs> like, I'm not actually arguing. <laughs> it is inconceivable, right? But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a quote-unquote argument from her standpoint where I am questioning something that she is saying, and I'm legitimately questioning it. And I'll say, I, I don't know the answer. I'm just exploring it. She's like, well, why can't, like, you know, by, by refusing to accept what I'm saying, we're having an argument. No, no, Jen, we're really not having an argument. And I'm fortunate that she's been willing to tolerate that for 20-plus years. But I, I, I feel um, for her. Yeah, I know, but almost anyone who knows me does. But 
So look, this this presentation you did on gold, it, it's again challenging some of those paradigms. You're seeking, you're not seeking conflict, you're 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 seeking, you know, a, a contrarian pushback on it. And one of the things I thought was so um so unique in terms of, of making your point why maybe gold is a bit of a relic is that you kind of went through this whole process of it just happened to be in the right place at the right time, right? You, you, you kind of had the periodic table and you crossed out all the elements because they were either, you know, toxic or, you, you know, you, you couldn't really work with them and, and you were really left with a, a handful of them. And the ones that weren't, you know, incredibly rare, very quickly, you know, took the role of playing money. And so to your, to your point, 5,000 years later, we're still kind of holding on to the fact that, you know, it had all these magical properties when really it was kind of more of the right place at the right time. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm actually happy to share the the slide if um, if your viewers would be interested in it. Um, yeah, go ahead. Let me, uh, do I have the ability to share on the screen here? And if, if not, I can just Yeah, why don't you it. enable it quickly? So this is the slide that I that I shared um, at that meeting, and it's asking the question like, why did we actually choose gold? Why was gold chosen? And more accurately, why was a gold silver uh, alloy choice chosen as the first? You know, what was referred to as electrum. Why was it chosen as the first? Um, uh, well, I'm in sec. My son is trying to sneak behind my green screen here. <laughs> Not very well, he asserts. He did. Uh, there, was, there was no conquering of Rome on the blue screen. No conquering of Rome on the blue screen. No, that's Marin County there. Um, so, you know, the question of why gold? Well, the, the dynamics of if you think about what was needed for coinage at the time, and coinage was really just a system of accounting, that if you think about, and I, I have this slide elsewhere in the, the presentation, you're familiar with this, what money is really about is the cancellation of debt. It is a uniform vehicle that allows you to assert, I have paid my debt and it is no longer held against me. And that's the value of the state is providing the resources and reinforcement around that, a court system that says, yes, you've paid your debt. Here's the demonstrated dynamic associated with it. And we will defend you against the depredations of a mafia or someone else who asserts that, yeah, sure, you gave me something, but it's not enough, right? Like those are the systems and roles of the state government. In terms of why it became gold, well, look, what are the key criteria when you think about trying to create coinage 2,000 years ago, right? And even today, for that matter, it needs to be solid at room temperature. And so if I think about something, things that are solid at room temperature, let's see if it's going to... Solid at room temperature wipes out all those elements on the periodic table. Can't be radioactive because that would actually be a fairly poor feature of coinage that you're holding in your pocket. Likewise, it can't be corrosive or toxic. That might improve the, the uh, velocity of money if it was toxic, but that's really not the objective here. You want to have something that you can physically hold and, again, keep in your pocket. And then there's something that people tend to forget about. So now we're basically down into the metallic compounds, right? The simple metallic compounds, everything from magnesium to cobalt, et cetera. And it needs to be malleable at achievable temperatures given the, the time period. So sure, we could mint coins out of tungsten today if we wanted to. And most people are going to be familiar with the fake gold that was uncovered in July in China, the roughly 83 tons. It turned out to be gold-plated tungsten, uh, um, uh, tungsten, I think it was tungsten, um, which has a similar 
atomic weight to gold. And so it weighs roughly the same and can, can be confusing in that framework, right? It doesn't look anything like it. Well, tungsten requires melting at roughly 3,500 degrees Celsius, right? That was not achievable 2,000 years ago. Mm. And so if you go down to things that are actually malleable at temperatures that can be achieved with an oxygenated furnace, you're basically down to nickel, nickel, copper, zinc, silver, and gold, right? Every single one of those is used as money all over the world. Alloys of them, occasionally tin will get constant tossed in there as well, right? But that is what it is. And then it just becomes a question of if you're going to use it for conducting international trade or, or large-scale trade, it can't be a complicated um, uh, alloy because you need to be able to test the accuracy or the fineness of it to confirm that it hasn't been counterfeited. And in that framework, you're effectively locked down to basically two elements, right? Silver and gold. And so we think that there is this giant magic component that, you know, the Lord has come down upon us and bestowed us with gold to function as our monetary system. That's not what it was. It just didn't do that. And so if you go back and you challenge that very basic assumption, then it becomes a question of you're now freed to start saying, well, what actually is money? If gold is not money, what is money? And my conclusion, as you know, is just very simply money is that which cancels debt. It is that which allows me to demonstrate that my obligation to a fellow citizen or a, another trading party, a counterparty in a trade, has been satisfied. And the minute you do that and you recognize that, right, which links itself back into the framework of what is the actual role of gold, what is the role of monetary systems, it's in maintaining social stability. It is giving you the tools to demonstrate in a trustless environment that you have performed your obligations. And that's all it is. And so now you can begin to evaluate the claims that Bitcoin is going to be money or that Bitcoin is going to be the store of wealth. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work because bit, where Bitcoin's big failure is actually in the social construct layer. And there you find all sorts of challenges that exist for um, those who hold Bitcoin or for those who think that Bitcoin is going to be broadly adopted, one of the most obvious ones being the limitation on supply. And so Bitcoin was very specifically created to prevent the flexibility or the printing of money that was done in 2008, right? Natoshi Sakamoto came out, um, or Satoshi Nakamoto, I'm sorry, came out in 2000. Uh, nine with his white paper specifically reacting to that dynamic and the sense of violation that it that it created for them right and so we they created a perfectly scarce vehicle the problem is perfect scarcity is not a feature it's a bug because ultimately if the role of money is to settle social obligations if you construct your money without the elasticity, and I want to make sure that people understand what that term is, because when I go to crypto Twitter or I have conversations with people who are Bitcoin maximalists, they tend to think that flexibility or elasticity is referring to, can I divide it? Can I take a single Bitcoin and split it into X number of Satoshis so that it can be spent and then even smaller than Satoshis? That's not what it's actually referring to. Elasticity means that the supply is capable of expanding. It's 
capable of expanding to offset permanent loss, right? So when a ship sinks at sea and the gold is lost, there is an immediate hit to wealth and there's an immediate hit to the supply of gold. But the social obligations associated with that, the need to repay debt, really are unaffected because we know that we have a social construct. What we're actually settling with is not gold, but with money, right? And so the flexibility of a dollar to expand to offset credit defaults, offset losses that have been created by malinvestment is really important. It prevents windfall gains to those who don't take risk. So just imagine in really simple terms, Bitcoin is supposed to have 21 million coins printed in total that can be divided into any number of subunits. Somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four million of those have been lost, right? Now that has created a windfall for those who continue to hold Bitcoin, right? By doing nothing, they have gained at the expense of the rest of society. Likewise, those who lend Bitcoin, if they lend it to somebody who is of poor credit, if they make a mistake, right, their losses are absorbed by those to whom the credit has been paid out. But if that is actually lost, right, so if I lend it to somebody who forgets it in a taxi, that taxi gets recycled, the recycled taxi destroys the hard drive or I lose the keys, right? That creates a windfall for the remaining holders, and that discourages risk-taking. The whole point in society is, is that we want to build a system that encourages risk-taking, not rampant speculation, which is what the Federal Reserve is engaged in protecting, right? We're going to protect against any losses by the corporate class, by the elite class, by those who have access to the regulatory framework to say, hey, we need to be protected because it will create social disruption if we experience losses, that's unquestionably evil. I'm not arguing against that. But Bitcoin is actually too good at it. By taking it out of the hands of human beings, you cease to have the monetary system function on behalf of human beings. And that's not a system you want to live in. So it's, it's um, again, a lot of times when, I, when I'm listening to or reading things that you put out, um, it crystallizes a lot for me because I've, I've had so many doses of, of these ideas or so many conversations, right? So it, it, it starts to become very supplementary and cohesive for me. Um, so to take it back a little bit, one of the things that, I mean, you kind of covered, as you're talking, there's little things that came up that I was going to kind of lead you towards and you kind of covered it anyway. But one of the things I really want to focus on First, there's actually two things. One is kind of lean in a little bit more on, on your definition, not your definition, but how you see the definition to be of money, because it's super important. And the first time, you know, I had a conversation with you about the shortcomings, let's say, of Bitcoin was around this time last year in London. And it was very much about the ability to use it to extinguish debt, right? Um, and that continues to be a, a conversation and a debate you have with people. But you know, talk about how you see, you know, the true definition of money. And also the, the point you really hit on there on the end is this almost criminal behavior from the money makers, from the central banks where Satoshi and Bitcoin and the Bitcoin um, 
the, 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 excuse me, the crypto religion that has kind of developed is so much so because of the abuse of that power, right? The, the, the abuse of the privilege to kind of make money elastic has created, you know, caused the pendulum to swing so far the other way that it's, it's, they want this ultimate perfect scarcity vehicle. So I, I think there's almost no comment that I can make about that because you kind of perfectly nailed it, right? It has absolutely been an abuse of the system. And like all abuses or excesses, it engenders a blowback or, you know, a, a shift in the opposite direction. Part of what I'm increasingly taking the role of is trying to explain to people that what they have fallen prey to is swinging too far in the opposite direction in a manner that will actually have incredibly catastrophic outcomes for society, right? The, the general idea of hard money, right? The view of hard money draws from the Austrian school of thought. And, you know, many of the luxuries that we have about thinking about money were actually created in the, in the 19th century, right? So, you know, what is money? This kind of deeper philo- philosophical question about it. The reason we actually began to think about that is, is until the, the expansion of the globe with the discovery of the new world and uh, apologies to the woke dynamic of, you know, highlighting that framework, but until we entered into these very long logistical chains, right, where we had product coming from China and product coming from the Caribbean and product coming from the new world and product coming from XYZ, the vast, vast majority of trade was conducted locally. Right. It was the local baker making your bread. You would pay him by saying, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a loaf of bread today. Right. That social contract was enforced by the local lord who would sit in judgment and say, this is what's going to happen. Right. The abuse of that system, the lack of fairness that is created because of the personal relationships of, of that Lord or what gave rise to things like the Enlightenment period, the theories of John Locke and others, and ultimately manifested itself in the U.S. Constitution and the right to have trial by a jury of your peers, right? Not by a Lord, not by the president, but by a jury of your peers, people who could be sympathetic to the events that had transpired. Right? And some of the most notable cases in U.S. court history are precisely those juries refusing to honor the request of the Crown to stick by the letter of the law and prosecute somebody in some way, shape, or form. Right, That human component, that compassion, that social contract that we enter into, that's what we were looking for. We were looking for a reinforcement of that. Right. Um, when you think about what money actually is, right? That agreement with the baker that I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a loaf of bread today. I obviously stole that from the wimpy uh, in the Popeye cartoon. I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. There's a great graphic online that I've included also in the presentation, which is showing Ronald McDonald and Burger King and Jack in the Box you know, beating up on Wimpy and be like, it's Tuesday, motherfucker. Um, <laughs> where's you know, my money? Where's my money, right? Well, the reason that you want money is that is how you settle that debt. That is how you demonstrate the proof of that obligation. That's what's printed on the currency. It says this is for the settlement of all debts, public and private, right? And that's what a nation state is. That's what a fiat currency is. It is a, an accepted and unified framework for settling that debt. 
if you do not have it, you know, the innovations of the 19th century were largely around saying, what do you do if somebody can't pay this back? Right? It used to be that they would be thrown in debtor's prison until somebody who cared enough about them bought them back effectively out of slavery and said, I will pay their debts. Right? Modern bankruptcy codes introduced the idea that that could be settled by placing the blame on the creditor. The creditor should not have taken that undue risk. Right? What does that do? That encourages risk-taking. That encourages somebody saying, you know, I've got a great idea. I'm going to give it a shot. And worst case scenario, I'm going to have to settle my debts. And that was what the introduction of limited liability in corporate form did. It changed equities or investment from an obligation for both losses and gains into a limited investment, effectively a call option on upside. Again, encouraging risk-taking, encouraging innovation. Right. Bitcoin rolls all that back in the same way that children of overly permissive parents become overly strict and children of overly strict parents become overly permissive, right? The problem is if we swing that far, if we swing to a perfectly hard currency, a currency that has no capacity for forgiveness or a system that has no capacity for forgiveness because it's embedded in the algorithm that we will not let a jury of our peers or our appointed representatives engage in this behavior, engage in this flexibility, this money printing, right? Then you're actually setting the conditions in place where our social dynamic becomes a game of monopoly. The objective becomes to accumulate all the wealth, not to build up in aggregate, the number of hotels, but to use your hotels to deprive your economic compatriots, right? Those who are participating in the social schema with you, you're no longer trying to raise value for them or deliver favors to them. You're trying to steal from them. And steal is, is an overly strong expression, but you're really trying to take and you're trying to accumulate and try to get to a zero-sum finish where one player has all the power. That's the future if people decide to pursue Bitcoin. And the problem is that people look at the success of Bitcoin, those exact characteristics, that scarcity, as money comes into the system, as people say, you know what, I'm going to just try to buy a safety place in this Bitcoin dynamic, because of the inelasticity, the inelasticity and I just want to specify what that means, right? An elastic system is one in which price changes very little for changes in supply and demand. Right? An inelastic system is one in which price changes quite a bit in response to fluctuations in supply and demand. Right? Not divisibility, which is what a lot of people on crypto Twitter seem to think that that means. Right? When you enter into that framework, if you have an inelastic product, trying to put additional money in causes the price to go up, and people interpret that as a sign of success. Look, it's protecting my wealth. It's working. This is a great thing. Right? This is the proof that Globe.com or JDS Uniphase or you know, um, Pets.com, this is the proof that, these are, that it is a new world, that there's a new economy and that we should ignore all the old stuff and instead focus on speculating into this bright future because the prices going up tell us that this is true. And unfortunately, that feels like where we are in this process. And it, it has very dangerous ramifications both on a social basis and on an individual basis. Right. So the idea of, of Bitcoin being the reserve asset or reserve currency 
fails because of its inelasticity. Inelasticity, um, yeah. Inelasticity. I couldn't get that out. Sorry. Um, okay. So at this point, though, because it's there's a couple things that you kind of kind of doors you open up there because we're at this point where the system has become so flawed, so unfair that people are um, they're, they're looking for a, a kind of a new horizon. They're looking to opt out. And that's a big right. part of the narrative. Right. And, yep. and in addition and in addition to that, the the pl- people who've been playing the Monopoly game early and already have, you know, the boardwalk and a few hotels, they want everybody to play Monopoly now. Um, and so it feels like it's very much become, and, and, and I'm hesitant to use the word, but it, it's, it's such an um, easy scapegoat, right? So it feels a lot like a Ponzi scheme. And I know that triggers people, but it feels like that because you know, not in the, in the purest sense of a Ponzi scheme where it's, you know, the supply, there's a hypothecation there and it, and it eventually crashes on itself. But a Ponzi in the sense that like the longer, you know, the, the game goes on, the more difficult it is for you to be a participant and actually benefit. And as you were saying, more and more wealth goes into a few few hands. And most likely at a certain point, those participants are going to realize that the game is probably running short and then ultimately exit that game. But the, the big thing here is this, this element, this idea, and this is, this was an important thing or light bulb for me um, hearing you kind of share your thoughts on this is this ability for there to be forgiveness, you know, as an entrepreneur who has screwed up a lot um, and continues to screw up. I mean, 14 days in a hotel is probably a screw up, but um, you know, being able to, you know, I've never had to wipe out the debts, but being able to, in some form or another, access a credit system that exists because there isn't this finite finite supply that, you know, I, when I need a bailout, you know, it's, it's available to me, not necessarily bailout, but when I need to go take on a loan to make a payroll or get through a hard time, the elasticity of that um, makes it functional. It's not, you know, and, and I guess another point to make I'm throwing a couple things at you at you here is, you know, if you're somebody who goes into a debt and it's it's agreed upon that that debt is extinguished through something like Bitcoin, you have such a limited supply and the ability to to lose that supply or any Bitcoin you hold is so high, and you have something that is inelastic and the price is because of that continuing to rise, you very quickly lose the ability to to pay that debt in a, right. in a functional way, very much so, and again, I'm throwing a lot at you here, but very much so it feels like part of this social unrest is the abuse of, of, of power from central banks and, 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 and the Lords, while at the same time, you know, you've had zero wage growth, the labor market, um, it's not what it used to be in the sense that labor used to be how you would ex- ex- ultimately extinguish your debts, right? It's, it was a way of, of acquiring money and money is a way to extinguish debt. So labor was your way of participating in this elastic game. You, you kind of eliminate all of these dynamics now, and it, it really does become a game of monopoly where you can't even get you know a piece to play on the board. So I don't know really what I'm leaving you with there to comment. No, no, you're, you, you've opened up the thread that I think is is sitting at the core of this, right? Which is 
people are looking at the system and it is inherently corrupt at this stage, right? And so I, I had somebody on Twitter reach out to me and ask me how I would reconcile my support for a recent interview um, by Rohan Gray of, by Dimitri Kofinas at Hidden Forces. And I encourage people, Dimitri has made that full interview available. He usually has a, a regular section and then a section that's reserved for subscribers. He's made that entire section available at my request. I'm very glad before, he did that. Before you go any further, I, I would like to empathize that as well, because that I started listening to it and I, I saw your comment on Twitter that you're going to try to get him to open up the the full episode. And I have not had a chance to listen to the second part. So I'm glad that you did because it's, it's one that people need to, to start chewing on for sure. Well, and, and I understand that many people don't have the luxury of paying for a subscription and, and gaining access to this. I genuinely believe that the second half of that and the entirety of that episode is something that everybody should listen to. And for many people, it's very hard to listen to that. I emphasized also please, this is hard to listen to. Listen with an open mind, right? Yeah. Rohan Gray is a professor, I believe, at Williamette University. I'm going to be interviewing him on Real Vision. Again, that will probably be available at the end of January on YouTube. Um, and so I encourage people to look for that. But the message that Rohan is carrying is one of frustration and anger. And you can hear it palpably in his voice. And it's many of the same things that you're saying. Yep. Um, and so somebody asked me how I can reconcile Rohan's views with those of Professor Richard Werner, who's a German um, professor of finance, who has done some really unique work into another aspect of what's referred to as modern monetary theory in identifying that banks literally do create money out of fairy dust, right? I mean, he, he did a 2014 paper where he did something truly unique in finance or economics, which is he engaged in actual scientific principles. And so he took a mortgage application and he did the equivalent of radio tagging it, right? So the way you would put a radioactive isotope of carbon into a living organism so that you can then track its movement through the body or the process of it going through. He did that with a mortgage application and watched at every stage of the banking process, did they ever say, do we have the money to make this mortgage? Do we have the reserves? Does the kind of money multiplier type framework play in? And the answer is no right? They don't. And so banks literally do create money out of thin air. As agents of the government, they create money out of thin air. Now, that's a really important thing. And again, it goes back to this dynamic of what is money. Money is that which cancels debt. It, what, it, what, what, it's what allows me to extinguish that mortgage that has been created by the bank, right? I could pay off my mortgage. Comparing that to, to Rohan Gray, who is saying some variant of, you know, um, the government provides money, right? The government controls the money supply. And unifying those two is, is required in a deep understanding of kind of what has transpired. So Richard Werner's takeaway from his observation that banks create debt is that means that you need lots and lots of small local banks. Why? Because it fulfills that social contract. Like A Wonderful Life, the movie It's a Wonderful Life, you can go to your local banker. And I did this, by the way, when I applied for my first mortgage to make, to make everyone laugh. But like, you print out a picture of your kid and you, know, you include a photograph of your child in your application for the mortgage. You know, please you know, think of the good that you're doing in this, right? Now, it's probably totally unnecessary. 
But there is a component of knowing who you're lending to and that social framework. And there's ills associated with that as well, right? Because that lending officer can be racist or they can, you know, have a prejudice against women or, you know, whatever, right? And we need to ensure safeguards against that. But when you concentrate a banking system, when you turn it into JP Morgan is always and everywhere the underlying feature, then there is none of that social relationship. And among other things, JP Morgan's activities, we've seen this in places like Japan and elsewhere, becomes focused on providing capital or providing lending access to the largest customers, those that can actually meaningfully impact their business. They can get far greater returns out of making $1 billion loan as compared to a million thousand dollar loans, right? Mm -hmm. And so the system increasingly moves away from being able to provide capital to those who, as you point out, might need it most to get a leg up into the system. The second unquestioned evil that we have done, and this is particularly true in the United States, it's less true elsewhere, is that we have reversed many of the steps that we took in the 19th century to introduce the idea of forgiveness of debt and created a class of debt in the form of student loans that are completely absurd. Right, The very first debt that most people take on is now non-dischargeable. Yeah. For some insane reason, we turn to 17-year-olds and we say, you know what, you should take on $100,000 worth of debt or $50,000 worth of debt, about 50% of which is going to go to pay living expenses, and the other 50% is going to go to pay overinflated tuitions for which the university has no responsibility in assisting you in providing gainful employment. Mm. Right? They take no risk in that process. And so everything becomes focused on, well, let's get these students in and get them to take these loans out. And we're going to call it financial aid, which is really just facilitating these kids going into debt that they then can't get rid of. Right? Like that, that is evil. It is a crime. And it should be treated as such. And people should be held responsible for it. But to turn around and then say that the problem is with the Fed, right, or the problem is with the flexibility of the currency, that we shouldn't allow the bailout of the corporate interests who have this broad voice, right, who have access to the lobbying activities, that's a fundamental mistake, right? What you're attacking is the use of that power, how it is used. You don't want to attack the power itself. And so the only thing I can say is vote better, right? I mean, Really take advantage of that. Educate yourself and explain yourself and communicate. And that's part of what I also try to do. Yeah. So again, opening up more Pandora's box, right? So just a quick comment. I know you already know this, but using the example from a mortgage standpoint, being that, you know, obviously this is something I know intimately running a mortgage business, we're already well beyond it having any kind of social construct. Um, to the point, we've had this conversation where it's it's already almost fully a AI product. Like you fit in a box, it's a very much a securitization machine. And if you don't fit in the box, you don't get credit. There's no, I'm, I don't care about your kids. It's not really relevant because that's not nope. a checkbox in terms of the algorithm. The other factor too is this idea of, and I, I don't know if this is, going down a windy road we don't want to go down but the idea of you know speaking of this podcast and and the idea or the theory of mmt and and allowing government to be able to create money it's it kind of stems from and i'm not saying that this is um roland's illusion but the illusion that most people have that the fed is creating money and money printer go burr is the 
2020 mm-hmm. uh, meme or narrative. And again, back to the point you're making, it, it's really the banks that are the ones that are creating this elasticity and creating credit in the system and allowing economies to grow because they're able to encourage risk-taking. And so now you're, you know, you're talking about, you know, eliminating that in a lot of ways and you're already seeing it to your point, I think pursuing an education because you, you want to be very good at a particular craft, maybe that's a poor decision and you need to be able to move on from that mistake and, and not being able to extinguish or use the bankruptcy laws to get rid of student loan debt. A lot of these things, the combination of an MMT and, you know, things that are like, I agree with you are criminal, like, you know, not being able to discharge student loan debt. It feels like all the, the wrong things with money are being discussed and are happening. And I don't know if it's be intentional or because they aren't having these conversations about really what is the underlying components and what is the social construct that we're really dealing with and should be focused on to make a, be- a better money system. Well, I, I would argue that they're almost an intentional distraction, right? By giving you the illusion that you can opt out, they are discouraging you or you are being discouraged. I want to be careful when I use you know, pronouns like they because I, don't, I generally don't believe that these are intentional actions. I think the incentives have just been set up to enable this type of behavior. But if you are distracted from addressing the real problem, which is how this power is exercised, and you have the illusion that you can step out and you can have the monetary illusion that you have become rich because of Bitcoin or you have become rich because of cryptocurrencies and quote unquote opting out as a first mover into effectively a chain letter or a Ponzi scheme, right? I mean, the the downside to a Ponzi scheme is that we presume they are initially created with the intent to defraud. I don't think that was the case And I I would point people back to something like Bernie Madoff, right? The initial attempt was not to defraud. He made poor investment choices, failed to generate the returns, convinced himself that by telling people lies, he would buy himself more time where he would then be able to replace that lost income. And then the system expanded. And by the way, that's part of the reason why the losses in aggregate were relatively small because he really didn't go off and spend the money on crazy things as, as some people do, right? He was trapped in a lie, right? I think something similar has happened to Bitcoin. I really genuinely do. I think unfortunately it's a, it's a much bigger scale dynamic. And as a result, people are increasingly trapped in it. And as you're pointing out, those who are um, at this point cheering the system on are a combination of those who are mystified and don't truly understand what's going on and some who are very cynically saying, you know what, I'm going to trade the bubble before it it pops, right? Paul Tudor Jones is, and and the misunderstanding of this, I mean, Paul Tudor Jones has come out and said, and, and by the way, I know Paul, he's an amazing guy, incredibly warm, incredibly generous, and he wouldn't intentionally take money from a grandmother for any reason whatsoever, right? If anything, he would want to give it back. But when Paul Tudor Jones goes out and says, I have a small position in Bitcoin, and that manifests itself in crypto Twitter is saying, Paul Tudor Jones is 100x levered long in, <laughs> in uh, Bitcoin. Like you just sit there going, what in the world is going on? And people are kind of trapped in this framework. Um, 
And again, you know, the feedback loop is each incremental dollar that comes in until people start taking more money out than goes in, that inelasticity manifests itself in rapidly rising prices. Over this weekend, you obviously saw Bitcoin prices appreciate somewhere in the neighborhood of 10%. Coincidentally, in quotes, right, not coincidentally at all to express that more clearly, with the government coming after Ripple. Right. And so money that was in one form of crypto very clearly transitioned to another form of crypto, creating a significant price bump that people have then interpreted as, aha, this is proof that a nonsense stock to flow model, you know, created by an anonymous person out there, you know, somehow or another works. It's just these things are not true. Right. And they are unfortunately very damaging. And it feeds back into a system that people have when they participate in a fake system. How can I get out? How do I avoid making decisions that make me even worse off? How do I avoid buying something from the company store if I'm trapped somewhere in West Virginia, right? I want to opt out. I want to grow my own groceries to avoid this. Well, what happens next? The jackbooted thugs of the company show up and stomp out your garden and say, you're not allowed to do that. You have to buy it from the company store using company script, right? That sort of system, people want out and they don't know how to get out. And so when given a small door to get out, they jam through it and it mm. creates the illusion that it's working. And what you're really doing is the exact same thing that people have heard me criticize fire participants for doing, et cetera, right? You're leaving the system. An economy and a social construct is a function of the number of participants. It's a function of each individual deciding that they are going to put their best efforts forward. And when you choose to try to opt out, you're damaging everyone in the process and ultimately yourself the most. So there's two things I want to ask you about here, and that's um, I want to give you a chance to explain why you're you're not a fan of the stock to flow model for Bitcoin. Second thing is explain what the fire participants are, so people understand that. So um, fire used to stand for. Uh, uh, finance, uh, insurance, real estate, uh, in terms of career choices. Now I believe it stands for um, uh, retire early, something, you know, um, financial independence, retire early, is I believe what it stands for, right? And so this is a framework that involves saving a lot, accumulating capital, and then retiring at the age of 35 or 40 or 45, so that you can go off and enjoy your life in a pseudo selfish framework while your money works for you, right? Um, that one's a very easy one to criticize for the reasons I said, look, you're, you are welcome to self-actualize, right? You can, I have repeatedly in my career, much to my wife's chagrin, chagrin again, you know, taken periods where I just went off and explored and it didn't take income and said, you know, I want to think freely without the obligations of having capital at work so that my mind is capable of fully functioning and being focused and present, right? A form of, of meditation, intellectual meditation for me. Um, when you have that type of framework on an individual basis, that's fine, right? You're, you're doing that. But for most of these individuals, they haven't achieved that freedom without the ability to put their capital to work. And so they are in turn are putting their money into passive investments. And passive investments is just another variant of the Bitcoin type framework. It's a direct outgrowth, in my opinion, of people feeling disempowered, right? I, I, I don't know what stock to pick. I don't know how to do this. It's been demonstrated to me clearly that on average, I'm going to look like a loser if I do that. I can't avoid, I can't be a loser in this system because it has no forgiveness, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't allow me to gain that forgiveness. It'll give it to, 
you know, the holders of Lehman Brothers International, or it'll give it to the holders of XYZ Corp and allow them to restructure their debts and retain their claims or to the management teams of companies. But it doesn't offer that to me personally, so I can't afford to fail. Therefore, I just want to be part of the average, right? I think that's a, a direct output from it. And I also think that is exacerbated by the focus on cost, right? So we have increasingly defined efficiency as a function of how much does something cost in its upfront wrapper, right? What is the management fee associated with a fund as compared to, or what is the demonstrated performance of that fund with no real consideration effectively of the second order effects of if everybody decides they're just going to do what everybody else is doing, that again eliminates innovation, right? It takes away the ability to contribute in a broader scheme. And so that, that's my complaint against, you know, my two complaints against FIRE is one, you're taking an, a, an economically active and potentially innovative human being by definition, if you've passed the marshmallow test enough to get to the point that you are under the FIRE label, you probably could have done some pretty special things in our economy relative to the average participant. And to step out is just a true loss, right? The second is the reliance on things like passive vehicles that supposedly remove the risk of making mistakes in those frameworks. I think, unfortunately, very much like Bitcoin, that exhibits itself in, in, in increasing inelasticity in markets, which causes prices to rise and makes you think you're doing the right thing. But as I've said elsewhere, you're effectively driving in a car with no brakes going uphill. I mean, if that car starts going downhill, you have no real, uh, there, there's no real solution to it. Um, what was the second thing that, that uh, I was going to talk about? The non-discharge. Uh, I, I asked you about the uh, stock to flow and it's not important. Oh, I don't want to go flow, back yeah. there because what's more important now that you kind of transis- transitioned to this direction and I appreciate your time. Um, I didn't spend any time at all introducing you. And part of the reason is, is because I felt like it'd be more fun for me to not. But um, the other reason is, uh, I think that podcast that you do with Grant Williams is ultimately the best way if someone's scratching their head and saying, who the heck is Mike Green and what makes him, you know, good at what he does or, you know, who is he in, in, in the professional space? I think that podcast kind of hit the nail on the head in a lot of ways. So there's no point necessarily in, in regurging, regurgitating that in the beginning of a, of a conversation. But now that we're here and you're talking about passive and we've kind of had this natural timeline to get here. Um, can you share a little bit about, you know, what you're doing at Logica and, and all of these things that we talked about, it's, it's great how you've, you know, led it to this point where passive very much so is acting almost like this inelastic Bitcoin type of um, construct that's causing these, you know, these inflows and we don't know what the outflows are ultimately going to cause. So it, um, just very quickly, I am the, the chief strategist, portfolio manager, and partner at a firm called Logica Capital Advisors. Logica runs what are referred to as long volatility strategies. Our flagship product is a hedge fund, the Logica Absolute Return product, or Logica Absolute Return Fund. Um, it is only available to accredited and qualified investors, which means our minimum account size is a million dollars. And of course, that is one of the challenges that is created in a system where I don't have the ability to market to anyone other than that, or even take their money if I wanted to because of regulatory restrictions on the number of investors we can have in the fund, right? And so that naturally encourages me to focus my efforts increasingly on those who can put significantly more than a million dollars to work with us. And it creates some 
you know, there's, there's genuine sadness for me on that part, right? Um, what we're trying to take advantage of is, is exactly this increasing in elasticity. And so the, the, the construct of our portfolio is built around the use of options or derivatives. Um, derivatives are priced off of assumptions of how markets work. Those uh, assumptions are largely predicated on the historical characteristics of markets. And as passive has become an increasingly large participant in the market, we are seeing a rise in what is referred to as the inelasticity of markets. So each dollar that comes in causes the market to go up in an accelerating fashion. And likewise, each dollar that tries to come out, as we saw in March, causes the market to go down in a faster framework, right? Um, we think that there are ways of constructing portfolios using derivatives that exploit those characteristics and take advantage of that increase in inelasticity and suggest that the derivatives themselves are mispriced. And so very explicitly, we have built strategies to take advantage of this changing character of markets. In terms of what drives the changing character of markets, if you think about the behavior of passive investors, people who listen to that Grant Williams podcast or listen to me speak elsewhere, um, will understand that the rules of passive investors are literally the simplest construction you can possibly have. Did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. Anything else? There's nothing I do, right? There's literally nothing that I do. Right. And so by definition, I become a hodler, right? I become somebody who is completely insensitive to changes in price, providing me with information of whether or not my investment is a good idea or not. And as money transitions from discretionary managers who would evaluate a security on the basis of its future prospects and the prospect for return associated with today's price versus some forward projection, the markets become increasingly momentum-oriented and risk-seeking, and higher prices beget even higher prices by attracting more marginal capital. So that's what we've built our portfolios to take advantage of and what we're trying to do at Logica. And look, you made, a, 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 a again, all these really profound points that I think people they latch onto a narrative because maybe sometimes it seems pragmatic or logical. But you made a very interesting observation. I believe it was in that interview um, with Grant, talking about what happened in March, where the things that you just explained, you know, calling passive investing hodling is, is I think, a really important analogy because what you had in March, what happened, what a lot of people talked about or what they thought happened, isn't really what happened because of these passive vehicles. So the people involved in passive didn't actually sell. And, yeah, and that's no, been a big part right. of your, your, your point. Yeah, no, so I mean, Vanguard, who is the largest passive manager in the equity space, has come out and as a point of pride, has highlighted that less than 1% of their accounts transacted in an unusual way, meaning they did anything other than add to their accounts, right? Less than 1% of their accounts transacted in March. Right now, they're pointing to that and saying, hey, it couldn't be our fault. Right? But by choosing not to react to that information, you actually are participating. Right? You are affecting the distribution of possible outcomes by removing yourself as a, as a provider of liquidity, either through additional sales or through additional purchases. You literally cease to, to exist in the system. And that, by very definition, is what a hodler is. A hodler is somebody who just holds. 
right? That's that's the whole joke, right? right? You think you're you're you know you you are actively doing something by not doing anything, and it's a deep misunderstanding about the construction of the system. And so, what what the observation ultimately was there that what a big part of what caused March isn't isn't retail. It wasn't retail, and it wasn't these people who are in passive flows because in many ways they've opted out. By opting out, they they put their money in passive. They've become holders or hodlers in in the equity space. In the meantime, you had the discretionary investors were the ones that were ultimately selling at the peak of of the March crisis and and causing all all of all of that kind of outflow and chaos. Yeah, I would I would go even a step further and say that it wasn't necessarily the discretionary investors, meaning individual investors deciding that they are going to buy or sell the mutual funds that they owned or did not, although that certainly happened. But it's really more the discretionary fund managers who are trapped in this very difficult situation where as markets are going up in January and February, hitting their peak, I believe, on February 24th of 2020, um, they're forced to look at their assumptions and constantly say, well, this seems like we've got a global pandemic developing, right? I mean, we've just banned travel from China. We're, you know, like these seem like very bad things, right? But at the same time, the market is going higher and therefore I'm being measured against the performance of the market. So can I actually sell? I I mean, I, I don't even know what to do here, right? And so they're trapped in this situation where they're also looking at the market and the perceived behavior of all the other participants. And they're saying to themselves, I don't really know what to do. And then it hits the inflection point. And suddenly those discretionary fund managers say, oh my gosh, I think this is really bad. I want to take the cash in my portfolio from 3% to 5%. And if they all do that in mass and they try to sell 2% of the, port of the market, in the absence of passive participating, right, the only other buyers are the discretionary managers and every single one of them is saying the same thing. I, man, I don't want to buy, right? I need to sell. And so the behavior of those active managers continues to influence the market. That is what we saw was an active manager-driven crash in February, March. But the extent of the crash, the violence of the crash is enhanced by the participation of the passive players, right? The hodlers who are not there, either to buy more because there's no instruction coming through, or in a worst case scenario, if people became scared enough or they even reacted to it to begin to sell, right? And we have not yet seen that event. We have not seen the passive selling framework. And I think you you lay out the framework of, of what that ultimately could look like in, in Grant's podcast well. So I'll, I'll let people kind of dive deeper there. Uh, one last question for you. I really appreciate your time here. The, you know, the arc of this conversation has kind of led to kind of like, well, what happens next? So how much of the current regulatory environment, conversations like the one that Dimitri had, and overall, you know, just all the things that are going on in terms of the corruption in the system, people looking for a way to opt out, do you have any feelings or thoughts on, you know, I know you, nobody knows the future, but where you think might be a positive direction for some of this to ultimately go? Like, how do we start moving in the right path? So I, I think, unfortunately, the right path requires each of us to make a commitment 
to positive change, right? And that, that we're not going to try to opt out of the system, even though that is the natural reaction function, and instead to recommit ourselves to doing a better job of electing individuals or appointing representatives who are capable of managing the system in a very efficient and accurate way, right? It's incredibly hard, and I don't know that it can be accomplished. And I've said this in the Grant Williams podcast and, and elsewhere, that there is a dark direction that we are heading towards where we have no trust in our elected representatives, despite the fact that ostensibly we elected them, and I'm not part of an election conspiracy camp or anything else. But we need to do a better job of putting people in place who are capable of pursuing these gains. And on the other side of that equation, part of the reason why you kick the can down the road, part of the reason why you refuse to make these hard choices is that you are hoping that the innovation will emerge that creates surplus and allows us to solve these problems, right? It's the person who continually pays their monthly credit card bill with the hope that they're going to get a bonus at work that allows them to pay off the balance at some point, right? That's the equivalent of what we're talking about doing with it. The way that has traditionally occurred within society is discovery of a new energy form or discovery of a new resource that allows us to pull together combinations of activities in a much cheaper framework, creating extraordinary surplus. And so that's the other thing that I would just encourage people to focus on is the ideas of innovation. And there are some very positive signs on that, right? The speed with which we have addressed coronavirus research, the the immediacy with which we were able to create the vaccines associated with it, have highlighted that we are beginning to move much more rapidly in areas of health, right? People's awareness of these dynamics the transition, the changes in education that have occurred so violently in the past nine months for many Americans and many around the world, I would argue have created a platform for innovation in which we may very well be able to make some substantive changes that introduces significant productivity in areas of the economy that have historically suffered from low productivity, things like the non-tradable sectors of education um, and healthcare. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that those improvements are within my lifetime. I'm not sure that as a society, we have the patience to wait for that. And it, it sets up a stage that could be quite dangerous and confusing and violent in a lot of ways over the next four or five years. So as someone with teenagers that are on their way to university, et cetera, what, do you give them any kind of, with this, potential maybe positive and or bleak futures or a certain element of guidance in terms of the education that they're pursuing and the futures, the futures that they're pursuing that you try to, obviously as a parent, you kind of want to let them do their thing, but understanding you, know, you, you want to lead them in the, in the, you know, path of highest opportunity. All right. I have uh, an application that is signing in and out. Let me just uh, shut it down. Um, so, I mean, children are, you've met my oldest son, Ryan. Um, you know, he's an amazing kid, brilliant. And um, children are inevitably going to choose their own path. You can work to guide them in any way, shape, or form you can. And, and the best thing you can do is to be quite honest with them. Um, what I have encouraged my kids to, to try to think about are the elements that you've heard me refer to, right? Participation and empathy and hard work and telling the truth and, you know, um, everything else comes out of that type of dynamic. And um, 
you know, my oldest son is pursuing a degree in agricultural economics at UC Davis um, and, you know, uh, managerial economics and will hopefully transition into something that is associated with that, but it creates the conditions under which he can pursue a broad career, whether that's in commodities trading or agricultural management, or, you know, he's currently uh, expressing interest in things like mariculture, right? So, uh, you know, uh, kelp farming and other stuff that I think is quite interesting. Cool. Uh, my daughter is heading off to the University of Pennsylvania to study at Wharton, as I did. She'll pursue a very different path, would be my guess. I don't see her as a, a macro trader, but um, she has extraordinary executive functioning skills. And my youngest is still deciding which way he wants to go. He's an incredibly talented politician and um, a natural leader. And, you know, I think if we're, I often joke that if we're very lucky that he will emerge as the uh, the authoritarian figure that's necessary in the next 30 years. But that's if we're fortunate, um, in my Wouldn't view. Wouldn't that be fitting I, uh, that your son becomes the next Caesar? Uh, well, it would, it would certainly help with my retirement plans. But, um, but then again, maybe he might have to kill me off in the process. So who knows? <laughs> Um, but you know, I I really do think ultimately that the only things that you can offer to your children are an element of security and and safety and the ability to go and explore those dynamics. And again, like that's very easy for me to say, I have that luxury, right. And it's a lot harder for most people. And so I'm, I'm, I'm again, quite sympathetic to that dynamic. Um, they are going to be fortunate that they don't have to take on non-dischargeable debt. I've chosen to do that for them. So, um, or to prepay that to be more accurate, but um, that will give them flexibility that uh, many in their, of their peers don't have. And that's, it is, it is very frustrating that one of the things I constantly have to say to my wife is while things look very difficult, the simple reality is, is that our children will be stepping into the world with advantages that many others don't have. And, and as long as they are aware of that and grateful for it and acknowledge that others don't have those same opportunities and are empathetic and, and sympathetic to the challenges that their peers will face, um, I, I've done the best that I can. Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, in terms of in the intellectual sense, I believe you've given a lot of people, including myself, an opportunity to explore ideas that otherwise, you know, I, I didn't have the runway or the aircraft to take that, you know, that journey initially. So I, I appreciate, um, you know, getting to know you over the past year and a half, uh, especially for that reason, but just as a person, you've, you've become a close friend and I'm certainly grateful for that. And I can't thank you enough for entertaining me here on this last couple hours of, of my, my quarantine journey. Um, if people don't already know you um, and where to find you, give us a little bit of plug as to where they can engage with you on some of the ideas you shared here today. So you can find us at our website at www.logicafunds.com. And um, you can follow myself on Twitter at, at ProfPlum99. You can follow my partner, Wayne Himmelsen, at Wayne Himmelsen, H-I-M-E-L-S-E-I-N. I was I'm hopeful that I get that spelled right in, in fast form. And um, on our website, we maintain a research blog where we share some of our thought pieces. Uh, and then I'm also very regularly appearing either as an interviewer or as a subject on podcasts and various other things. So you highlighted the Grant Williams. Uh, you can find me on Real Vision. And I have a series on Real Vision. Uh, it's called Mike Green in Conversation, in which I subject all sorts, all manner of guests to the sort of grilling that you have provided me, I'm not nearly as gracious and, and generous and uh, um, try to push people in, uh, in places where they often don't want to go. But it's a Charlie Rose style format that, that um, hopefully brings out some interesting information for people. Well, well look, I, before I close, 
you mentioned something I do want to ask you about. Um, your Twitter handle is, is prof, basically Professor Plum, and your avatar is Vicini. Yeah. Can you kind of explain that, that, that the combination of those two and, 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 and kind of the relevance to that decision? Um, so in the very, very early days of email and the internet, um, you needed various logon signs. At the time, I was considering getting my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and so it was a little bit of a joke. Instead of Professor Green, it was Professor Plum uh, <laughs> playing on the clue dynamic. And 99 was, you know, just a number that uh, made it accessible because obviously there's lots of professor people who had thought of Professor Plum back in the days when nobody knew if you were a dog on the internet, right? Um, <laughs> and the um, the avatar of Vicini, um, it draws from the movie The Princess Bride, right? The uh, the, the character of Wallace Shawn is, you know, the, the smartest man alive. And, um, you know, he's, he, he presents himself as all-knowing. And that, you know, uh, I... I, I I forget it's, uh, you know, South, the Galileo, Socrates, you know, morons sort of thing, right? Um, he encounters a game where he doesn't understand the rules of the game, right? And as a result, he dies. And what I have often found in my career is that where you make mistakes, it's because you don't understand the rules of the game you're playing. And so I, I describe it this way. My oldest son, Ryan, again, is, was, was very avid at playing board games. And I encourage that. I encourage everyone to do that, but what you're really trying to do with board games, you're given a very simple description of how the game rules work, right? You're told the rules, but you're not told the strategies, right? And you don't deeply understand the game until you understand the strategies that people are going to play, right? Where do you position your hotels? Do you buy every property? Are you willing to pay up for a, for a hotel early in the game of Monopoly, et cetera? What are your opening moves in chess, et cetera? Um, understanding the game that you're playing is probably the single most crucial aspect of game playing. And that's what the character of Vicini forces me to remember. Gotcha. Well, most important lesson here, despite all that you shared today, is that you never challenge a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although, although the Dread Pirate Roberts pulled it off. So, uh, so, so I'm not sure which characters um, you are or we are or we all are in, in playing this game, but I definitely think you've given us a bit of a, a leg up and hopefully we can do a better job of formulating our own strategies and in, in, in terms of trying to figure out the rules of the game. So thanks again, Mike. I really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure, John. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Money MBA podcast with your host, Jonathan Katsmita. It's also my pleasure. See to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. To access more great content, visit us online at moneymba.com. That's where the money is. And more than that, control. There's only one person in the world to decide what I'm going to do, and that's me. And I am deadly serious about that. That's it. I'm done.